Good morning, everybody. Nice to be back with you again. Excuse my voice. Um, it's affectionately called the Indonesian dog bark. <clears throat> I, uh, I was christened with that. Uh, I was spent the last 12 days in Indonesia. Got back Friday morning, and uh, of course I had about 11 flights. And my doctor yesterday said uh, the flights will do that to you. Start with something, and the antibiotics should kill it within a few days. I hope. So I think we'll make it through uh, this morning. I've uh, spent a lot of time uh, travelling the world and had the privilege to meet many different people and to understand a little bit about missions. I was a missionary with OM for 18 years. I've mixed that between business and missions and now the job that I have with the Entrust Foundation sort of blends those two things together beautifully and uh, it suits the skills that God has given me. This morning I wanted to talk about effective mission strategies because our world is changing so fast. If we don't change the way we do things to keep uh, pace with the change of the world, we'll very quickly become irrelevant. But it was interesting as I was hearing that passage read uh, again from Acts this morning, I thought, well, that could have been written last week because we live in a generation where people are chasing the latest idea, the latest philosophy, what's the latest trend, what's the latest app, what's the latest thing that we're going to do. And so this morning I'll give you a quick overview of that passage and the implications of that and then I'll be able to give you, uh, as I wrap up, um, just eight effective mission strategies for you to think about. And at the beginning I'll let you know that I'm going to leave you with some things to think about. I'm going to leave you with three thoughts. Out of what I've shared this morning, I want you to ask God, what is one of the things I need to stop doing as a result of being at Monty this morning? Secondly, what is something that I should continue to do? And I hope you're encouraged to continue to do that. And the third thing will be, what is something that, as a result of what we've heard this morning, something that I should start doing? So eight mission strategies, a quick flick through, uh, through this uh, uh, program and through the message and uh, I'll, uh, I'll show you this cartoon to start with. It's lightly irreverent because it's got the word bartender in it so forgive me for that. I spent half an hour trying to talk with them wanting to learn about their culture until the bartender cut me off and told me they were patio umbrellas. <coughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing, that's good. <laughs> Actually a, a friend from Sydney sent me that in a text yesterday. I thought, that's gold, I've got to use it this morning because <laughs> it fits in so well. We can actually try too hard to be culturally relevant and to try to understand cultures and that perhaps highlights that. But what does it mean to be culturally relevant in the world in which we live? How do we effectively share the good news in a culturally relevant way in 2016? The traditional missionary thing is that you buy a pith helmet and you go to India or darkest Africa and you have a big black Bible and you stand on the street corners and you preach at the natives. Um, and, uh, and I have been in Africa recently. I was there late last year in the Congo, in Rwanda, in Kenya, Uganda um, and also in South Africa. And, and I see remnants of the colonialist missionary endeavours in Africa. And yes, God used those and, and they were effective in the time but we can't use those methods now. They're just no longer effective because of the, uh, the world in which we live. When I was with OM in the early 80s, I would often go out and preach uh, on, from the street corners. 
I remember standing on the uh, Havelra Bridge which runs across the Hooghly River in downtown Calcutta and I had a stack of tracks, Bible tracks and there was Hindi on the top and Urdu or, or um, Bengali on the bottom and I was jammed in against this wall and there was just a sea of people moving across this bridge. They estimate one million people cross this bridge every day in Calcutta. And as fast as I could give out these tracks, I had a little rubber thing on my thumb. And they would say Bengali or Hindi, Hindi and I was Bengali off the top and I'd flick it underneath and a Hindi one could shoot out the bottom. And I think there were several of us on both sides of this bridge and we distributed thousands of gospel tracks in the space of an hour or two. People were so hungry to get the word of God. They were so hungry for the latest idea, to hear the latest thing. And as a, uh, as a, a foreigner or in Indonesia, I'm a bule, um, uh, foreigner, people wanted to know what I had to offer. But I probably, when I go back to India later this year, I won't be giving out tracts. I won't be standing on the bridge, although I'll be going to Calcutta again. I won't be standing on the bridge giving out tracts. I'll be building relationships with local people and empowering them to do the task. Sometimes we can come across, and when I turn up, I'm so careful that I don't present as the expert from the West we are here to help you because it sounds so paternalistic. And even the fact that I turned up in a village uh, out of Palu in northwestern Sulawesi last week, I went to this, uh, Palu is a, a little one-horse town in Indonesia, and then you drive for three hours and you're really in a really small one-horse town after driving three hours in Indonesia. And these people were so excited to see me. I've got a picture later on, I'll show you. Um, but... I just, it was a little church and we, we sang and we worshipped and I prayed and I think I shared a brief message and then we met as a community and said how can we engage with the village where God has placed you? How can we help you to engage to share Christ with the Muslims who live next door to you? And that was, uh, that was something that was a real privilege. The principles that Paul used in Acts are relevant. and We must keep adapting those same principles to our 21st century reality. Paul's approach. What was Paul's approach? We're going to look at Paul's approach and we're going to see what he did. We're going to have a quick look at how he did it. This is a, a picture of a, a slum in Kawangwari in Nairobi, Kenya. And we, in uh, trust, helps fund a small school there. School's not very clever. It's made of tin. Tin shed, tin roof, tin walls and tin turns into an oven if you make it hot enough. And, uh, but there are kids from the slum, from the Kawangwari slum, who go and live in that place and attend school and it's run by a big local church and, uh, and the people there love the people, show their love of Jesus by offering an education at very little cost. They make them pay for it actually because if something's given free now, it's often not considered valuable but if even the poorest of the poor have to pay something uh, for their schooling, they value that. And I've learned in my travels that every person has what I call a discretionary spend. Even if we're poor, we make a decision, do I buy some beetle nut or do I not? Do I buy cigarettes or not? Do I uh, go drinking with my friends or do I save that and put it to my child's education? And so we're learning that uh, to charge a nominal amount of money for kids to go to a school is a very healthy thing because it forces the parents to make a choice of how they discretionarily spend their money. And if they want to invest it in their children's education... It's a very wise thing. Paul did three things very, very quickly. He, he, uh, he, he wanted to uh, learn about the culture 
in which he was living. He studied, he walked around, he looked at the, t- he looked at the gods, he looked at the, uh, looked at the uh, idols and he learned about the culture. Secondly, he engaged and thirdly, he related. Idol worship uh, was common then. It's very common in many parts of the world. Many of these uh, people and countries are what we call syncretized. So while they might be nominally Christian or nominally Muslim or nominally Hindu, they actually mix up a little bit of the traditional ancestor worship or spirit worship and they blend them together and you end up with what is called a syncretized religious worldview. Well, in Indonesia, it's the largest Muslim country on the planet. But in the places I went to, in, in Halmahera in the Maluku Islands, right up in the northwest of the country, just south of the Philippines, and then in, uh, in northern Sulawesi, uh, there's a very syncretized religion. After I'd prayed uh, and shared with these people, I was asked to go and pray for some people. And, uh, and uh, people, um, there are witch doctors, and witch doctors cast spells, and people get sick, and people die because of the power of these witch doctors. But I reminded them that we serve a Jesus that's more powerful than all the others, and told them the story about Jesus casting out the demons of this person. And even the demons recognised who Jesus was. They said, if you come to torment us, son of the most high God. So said of these people, if the demons recognise Jesus and are scared of him, why are we following anything else? Let's just follow Jesus. A great thing to do. So learn, I'd encourage each one of us to learn about the culture in which we live. If you have a Muslim neighbour, ask them to tell you, tell you about Islam. If you're scared you're going to be converted, then you and I need to have a chat. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but if your neighbours are Hindu or your neighbours are atheist, talk to them. Ask them about their world view. Ask them about why they believe what they believe. In Australia we're not allowed to talk about politics or religion, but everything else is okay. How silly is that? And, uh, and uh, AusAid, our government aid agency, wants to try to remove the religious component from any aid that's given and say that if the Christians put in a water well, it's a Christian well, so we can't have it. But in the developing world, who you are and what you believe is, is wrapped up in your whole life. You can't take your religion and put it to one side and say, well, my life's here and that's what I believe. What you believe makes us who we are. But in the West, we've managed to dissect it and cut and dice it. And, uh, and so people actually in the, in the West have a religious view. Sometimes they're very strong. But if you're brave enough to ask the question and not to come across as a preach or tell them that they're wrong, but just to engage with them and ask the question, then you say, why do you believe that? How did you come to that conclusion? I was having my hair cut yesterday. This woman told me that she was doing some sort of meditation and it was, you know, wonderful. I didn't deeply engage with her because I wasn't feeling 100%. But we did talk about what I do and we talked a little bit about about what it means to, to stop human trafficking and she was quite interested in that. I sought to engage her at a level where uh, she would actually relate and connect. And so often as Christians, one of the criticisms uh, thrown against Christians is that we're so uh, right and we're so self-righteous and we're right and everybody else is wrong and that puts people off what we believe. Jesus didn't come across like that. He loved people, he came alongside, he engaged, he connected, he learnt from them, he engaged with them and he learnt how to re- relate to them at their point of need, not our point of what we believe.
Paul engaged with the thinkers of the time he presented his argument in a way that aroused their interest he acknowledged their interest in religion and he did find that altar to the unknown God and that was, that was his defining moment he said let me talk to you about the altar that you've got to the unknown God because I can help you there and when we engage with people and we ask questions rather than tell them we find the chink in their armour we often find the touch point that will give us some common ground with which uh, we can relate to them Paul argued if God created us how can he be an image made by human hand made by silver or stone or gold then he challenged him he said in the past God has overlooked ignorance now he requires repentance you only get away with ignorance for so long and God's saying it's time to repent time to put aside your ignorance and to recognise who God is and Paul didn't hold back he said one day God will judge the world some scoffed at him and others wanted to know more and I want to suggest to you that when we are able to culturally in an appropriate way share our faith people will scoff at us ah that's old fashioned that's what your grandfather believed the world's moved on you know God's at the top of the mountain and doesn't matter what religion you follow all religions lead to the top whether it's Allah, Buddha, um, Jesus, whoever yeah, we'll all end up in the same place and if we make a stand and we stand for what we believe and we do it gently and with wisdom then I believe that God will use that and some will scoff and write us off and that's okay, that's between them and God and others will connect and think and listen and want to engage with us as we do it in a culturally relevant way when some scoffed and walked off the conversation wasn't finished for many at that point it was just starting I want to tell you about a guy I met uh, earlier this year I think it was Pastor Gasson Thomas he was speaking at a, a, bre- a prayer breakfast in the eastern suburbs there's a picture of him with some kids he's from the church in ba- he was from Baghdad he's an Australian refugee he said I came by, by plane not by boat and uh, he said uh, I'm an Australian citizen but he said I had a, uh, a church in Baghdad he said there are a thousand people in my church and he said and I thought I'm, I'm a Christian I'm going to put a big cross on the top of my church I'm going to light it in neon light so the whole of Baghdad can see my, my church and know that Jesus is alive and well and because of that in a very strongly Muslim and, uh, and antagonistic culture he uh, had many death threats made against him and he was telling us that one day four armed men walked into his office with guns drawn and said we've come to kill you and he said I knew the Muslim culture I understood a bit about the Muslim religion and he said I know that if you're a Muslim there is no certainty of salvation there is no certainty that when you die even if you do jihad and you die under uh, jihad there is no certainty you will go to heaven he said I knew that so I said to these four gunmen I said uh, Pastor Gaston Thomas said I just said it's fine go ahead shoot me I know where I'm going when I die I know if you shoot me today I will immediately be in heaven they went stop what how can you know that well as Christians the Bible says that when we die we're going to heaven to be with God do you know if you're going to heaven and they said well actually no we don't and Pastor Thomas said we went on and had a chat for about half an hour and I engaged with these four gunmen who had come to assassinate me he said and after half an hour they left scratching their heads quite confused and walked out and I was still alive when we understand other people's faith when we understand the chinks in their armour 
when we engage with people in a culturally relevant way God will use that to confound the wise or supposedly the wise but he knew which button to push and they left and he came to Australia and I'll never forget the quote he gave us he said you know he said, he said I've had so many death threats against my life he said I've lost count he said but God's kept me he said I've been bold in a, in a, in a difficult environment he said, but God's kept me. He said, you know what? He said, I've been in Australia now for five years. He said, the conclusion I've come to is that Australia is one giant Disneyland and we're all living in Disneyland and none of us even know it. And I thought, wow. How many have been to Disneyland? Anyone been to Disneyland? I've been, a few of us have been. Disneyland's a great place to go for the day. You do the rides, you pay the overpriced stuff, you drag the kids around and uh, we all have a good time and you think oh that was Disneyland it was Fantasyland it was whatever then you go back to reality but as far as Pastor Thomas is concerned this country is Disneyland this country has everything that we could ever want this country has a thing called healthcare Medicare the dole support good hospitals everything that we need last year for, uh, last week for two weeks I was a multi-millionaire I put my ATM card into an ATM machine in Indonesia, draw out $100, I have a million rupiah. <laughs> I thought, whoa, look at this. <laughs> but I was also in a hospital last week up in Halmahera in a, in a place called Hohidiai. And uh, they're struggling financially to pay the bills. And their staff are on reduced wages in this hospital. And uh, the director, the friend of mine, Peter Scarborough, some of you may know of him, Peter said, well, our staff are on 75 Australian dollars a month for their wages. We've had to reduce their wages because we don't have enough money. And my heart breaks when I hear that. But my heart is so excited when I see the opportunities that God has given those people in that very needy part of the world. Don't forget about Pastor Gas and Thomas because uh, he's, a, he's a hero. This is not going to work for me now. Can you advance me one more slide? I'll try. Oh, there we go. We need to understand the times in which we live. Now, uh, that's a photograph of my wife with a, with a Karen uh, woman. I just want to make it sure you know that Julie's the one on the left, just in case you were concerned. <coughs> and the other one was taken a couple of years ago when I was on the Thai-Burma border. That's a Karen soldier who was fighting the government uh, in Myanmar but now Aung San Suu Kyi has been able to, uh, to negotiate with the tribal groups and bring some sort of unity in that very uh, desperate nation and things are changing so rapidly in the country of Myanmar. But this lady smoking a pipe, the one on the, on the right is at least, um, and, uh, and our worlds are so different. Uh, I don't spend much time with soldiers but they were looking after me on that day so I was very happy to know them and very happy to be friends with them. We stayed up in a hill tribe village overnight, slept on the wooden floor, that was fun. My hip bones just about recovered three years later. <laughs> but, uh, but, but when we engage with these people, we do look like those uh, patio umbrellas. We come in looking like margins to these people um, because our lifestyle is so different. But when we engage and we understand the times in, in which we live, what we say is so important. How we communicate is so important and how we engage with people is equally important. I, I just want to take a minute just to quickly mention what we do with Antrust. Some of you will know, some of you may not. 
but Entrust was started by Eugene Vieth and we worked very closely with local implementing organisations. They are all Christian and we do uh, community development projects in education, economic empowerment, so microloans, sometimes we help fund the start-up of small businesses. We work on preventing and combating human trafficking in all its forms and we help people with clean water, sanitation and hygiene training. We've been doing that now for about seven or eight years and by God's grace, uh, Entrust keeps on growing. It keeps on being able to give more. And uh, we have currently about 62 different projects in 15 countries uh, scattered in Africa, India and Asia. Each one of those projects is engaged with the local community. Each one of those projects is adding value to the community. But each one of those projects is run by Christians whose heart is not only to physically help the community but to spiritually share the love of Jesus with them in a way that relates to their culture and the way that they do it. A great example of this is uh, a friend of mine called Vincent Monyosi. And Vinnie Monyosi works in East Africa in a place called Mbale in Uganda. And I was there in November last year. And Vincent's story is amazing. I'd like to share it with you because this illustrates what I'm trying to say this morning. It illustrates how amazing God is and how when we are culturally sensitive, God will use that to impact the nations. Vincent's mother was a prostitute. He didn't know who his father was. Uh, He was given to a family to be looked after because the mother thought that that could have been the father, but she wasn't sure. And because the father felt obligated and he had four or five kids of his own, Vincent was the add-on and he used to beat his own kids on a regular basis but Vincent got an extra dose because it really wasn't his son. But at three months of uh, age, uh, Vincent's father, who was also a witch doctor, decided he would sacrifice him as as a child sacrifice. The grandmother found out about it and rescued him, left him in that home till he was 16 and at 16 he'd had enough of the beatings and decided to leave. He went down to Mbale, he was living up in a place called uh, Wanali, up in a very animistic part of uh, that part of Africa, a sort of Muslim animist area. He went down to uh, Mbale and he lived on the street. He was a street kid and he got really sick. In fact, his father had beaten him so badly one night he was knocked unconscious and as someone picked him up and put him in the hospital for three days, he was in a coma. He said, when I woke up, there were three foreigners, three Muzungu, looking at me, and they were missionaries there. And he said, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I thought these ladies were angels. He said, they cared for me and they loved me and they told me that I was special. They told me that God loved me. He said, I'd never heard that before. I'd never heard that anyone cared about me. I was the son of a prostitute and beaten by a witch doctor father my whole life. And he said, I gave my life to Jesus. And he said, and I studied hard at school and these missionary people helped me. And they took me into a children's home. He said, I eventually wanted to go back to my village at 18. I went back and told them I was a Christian and they tossed me out. So he said, I couldn't go back in there because they were so hostile. But he said, I uh, then went to study uh, at Bible College and he got, became a pastor. And he pastored a church in Mbale called Bethel. And I was there four and a half years ago and I met Vinny for the first time and I said, Vinny, how's it going? He said, oh, I said, the church is going really well down here in Mbali. We want to help the Mooney community. We want to help them. 
And he said the best way we've decided to help them is with economic empowerment and teaching them to grow coffee. And he said, would you help fund us to do that? So we put in some money and we funded him over those years. But when I was back there last November, I was with Vinnie. The first trip, by the way, I couldn't go up to the man. He said, I can't take you up. I can't show you. It's too hostile. He said, it'll just cause problems, especially you being white. It'll just cause problems. So I'm sorry I can't take you up there. It's just too dangerous. So when I was there in November, Pastor Vinnie, how's it been going? He said, God's good. He said, come with me. We jumped in his old four-wheel drive and we drove up this mountain and everyone that saw his four-wheel drive all waved, big smiles on their faces. Pastor Vinnie, hello, hello. And he rolls down his window and has a conversation with each of them as he's winding up this mountain. And then there's an imam, a, a guy with a, with a cap on, a Muslim with a haji cap, walking down the mountain. He says, stop. I thought, oh dear, we're in trouble now. And Vinnie winds his window down and the, and the imam pushes his hand through the window and they shake hands there's animated conversation we drove off after a minute I said well you have to tell me about that conversation and then he said you know that man would not talk to me two years ago he wouldn't even give me the time of day he hated me but now we're close friends and I, I, I see him regularly and we're close friends I said Vinny what's happened up here he said well he said you've been helping fund us and we're grateful for that he said but God's at work he said, we've taught these people how to grow coffee. And he said, and we did some training in, uh, in, in business, small business. And we've given the women some microloans. And they've started little businesses now and their family getting fed and they're going to school. And he said, uh, he said, we have an open door of invitation. He said, but for two years, we didn't mention Jesus. We didn't talk about God. We loved them. And we taught them to grow coffee and we helped them with their economics and we helped empower them. He said, now after two years of saying nothing, he said, the village leaders came to us and said, we know you're a pastor and we know that you've come to our village and we know you're helping us. But everyone else that's come to our village has wanted something for themselves. The commercial coffee growers came and tried to rip us off on our coffee and tried to, to, to buy it off us for not enough money. He said, but you've come and you've served here for two years. He said, we want to know why you've, why you've come because we can't figure you out. And then he said, well, we've come because we're just being obedient. I said, what do you mean? They said, we're just doing what Jesus said. We've come to love you and to help you and to, and to show you Jesus' love in a practical way. And the leaders of this mountainous area said, we so appreciate you coming. We would like to know more about this Jesus you talk about. And then he was very excited to tell me that there are now 10 churches up there in Wanali. God's been at work <clears throat> and my point is that when we show Jesus love in a practical way when we don't preach at people when we don't try and convert them when we show them God's love God has a way of using that himself ten churches in this area just opened the tenth one the week before I got there and Vinny with a big smile on his face you're no brother Richard he said it's not finished yet he said, the people from the valley over there, he said, the leaders came to me and said, Vinny, we know what you are doing here. Could you please come and do the same thing in our village? So as a result of doing the right thing there, the door has opened for this other animist Muslim village to receive the same love and care that, uh, that has taken place in Wanali. So when we think about the Apostle Paul preaching 
and engaging with the community, Vinny is a modern day example of how that works in a very, very needy part of Africa. Vinny is an amazing man and he's a close friend and I love him to bits. But what can we do? What can we do? How can we change things? I want to just quickly share with you eight things uh, and I won't spend any time on them because you can figure it out for yourself. But what can we do to be engaging in our own communities? The first thing is that we need to understand our own gifting. If, uh, if you're a gifted builder, um, it's probably not a good idea to uh, do something that you're not gifted at. Uh, I'm not very good at electrical stuff. Um, I'm good at some things but not good at others. Um, I work with a colleague who's a very gifted administrator. She keeps everything in order. She knows how to work uh, administration. She can do applications. She can field things. She can check budgets. She can get reports out. I can do it but it's hard for me. I'm very much more a people person. I very much engage with donors. Uh, and I relate well at that level and with our partners. This, uh, this last trip, uh, 11 flights and uh, we had uh, eight different engagements with different groups. Wonderful time, a real blessing, a bit tiring, but uh, what a privilege to be able to engage with these people and to figure out how we can be effective. Think about your own gifting. Think about what you're good at and I would encourage you to use that gift for the kingdom, to use it in a culturally relevant way. If you're a great cook and you're good at baking cakes and you get a new neighbour, take some and take them next door and build that relationship. Do whatever you're good at because when you work in the area of your gifting, God will maximise the results. Don't, uh, don't try and do something that you're not good at. Use your gifts for the kingdom. Yes, use your gifts to bless others as well but think about how we can use our gifts to grow the kingdom of God. I actually don't worry about growing in trust. I don't worry about growing and making it a big organisation because I actually don't believe that bigger is better. What I worry about is how can I invest my time in growing the kingdom of God. This last couple of weeks I spent, I spent some time with someone uh, in helping encourage and spent some time with a pastor actually, a lady called Pastor Henny. And she came with me and her husband for part of the trip. I hadn't met her before. It was God's timing. She just finished 14 years of ministry and God was speaking to her about the next, next stage of ministry in her life. And we spent hours actually into the night talking and she was asking me about ministry, asking me about her gifting, saying that she was really wanted to move on from looking after a, um, a congregation of people who she was at their beck and call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if their child got a cough, they'd ring the pastor and she'd have to come around at three in the morning and pray for the child. Incredibly selfish in many ways. But I encouraged uh, Henny to identify her gifting and to use her gifting to grow the kingdom. Third thing is to practice what we at my home church call every place mission. So regardless of where you are, what your circumstances, if you're in a nursing home, you're in the place of business, you're running your own business, you've retired, you're at high school, you're at university, it doesn't matter. Practice your, your ministry wherever God has placed you. And life is full of seasons and we're going through changes and seasons. Julie and I are in the process of moving house. We settle our house on Friday. I think I started to move before I left for Indonesia. Julie kindly finished the move while I was away. It was great timing actually. I got back Friday. She had to move the house Thursday. I thought that was really good. Using her ministry. <laughs> I'm joking. <coughs> 
But practice your mission, practice your engagement with the people where God has placed you. Don't say, oh, one day if I ever get a chance to go to Indonesia with Richard, I'd be really good at that. No. If you can't do it here in Australia, in the place where you're living today, now, you probably won't be that good if you change locations. The location doesn't shift. It's your heart that God wants to use and your skills that God wants to use to touch people in the place where you are today. Number four, become an agent of hope. So wherever you go, you're bringing the hope of the gospel to people. In our church at New Hope, and uh, New Hope Baptist, where I'm part of that church, we encourage our people, when you go on holiday, if you go to Bali for a holiday, go to Bali and have a great holiday, but why don't you take one day to engage with a local mission organisation or engage with a local person or take the person who you as your waiter at the hotel and take them out and give them a treat and engage with them and make a friend. Not just as a tourist, but engage with a direct purpose of sharing your faith in a relevant way with them. And think about how we can be agents of hope wherever God has placed us. If we go on holidays or if we travel or if you're in a club that's maybe it's a, a, a Lions club or a Rotary club, be an agent of hope, the hope of the gospel wherever you go and be intentional about it. Stay informed, keep on top of what's happening in world politics, keep on top of what's going on in the planet, what's going on with other religions, what's going on within our own culture, what's going on with the issues that our church faces here in Australia. Same-sex marriage, all sorts of challenging issues for the church. We haven't even begun yet, I've got to tell you. It's going to get difficult, it's going to get more difficult and it's going to be more and more difficult to stay relevant in the times in which God has placed us. But that means we need to stay informed. We need to have a view and we need to be able to share that in a culturally sensitive way. And the best thing, God's given us two ears and one mouth, so we have to listen twice as much as we speak. We've got to use those things in the proportion that God gave them to us. And I want to say for some of us, including me, especially that's hard. Stay connected. So stay connected to people. Stay connected to, uh, to um, what's going on. Stay connected and think about how we can connect the people that we haven't yet connected with. I keep, we try hard to keep a wide variety of friends uh, and we try to connect with lots of people who aren't yet Christian. And it means that we have to say no sometimes to, uh, to our Christian friends. Now we can't do dinner with you tonight because we're doing something else and while it's not, uh, it's not an evangelistic thing, staying connected with friends uh, is very, very important. Just the week, the week before I went to Indonesia, I had a friend of 30 years who passed away with motor neuron disease. My brother had passed away about a year and a half before with the same disease, so I knew what it was about. And Jackie and David were nominal Christians. I've been to our church a couple of times. We've invited them. But uh, it was a privilege for me to take my very close friend's funeral just a couple of days before I left for Indonesia. And Jackie said, Rich, would you actually, Davy would love have you, would love you to take his funeral. Would you be willing to do that? So I was able to take a funeral down in the Mornington Peninsula with a bunch of self, some self-professed atheists. Some were into the New Age movement. Some were nominally Christian and others were very, very old-fashioned, traditional Christian, but only nominal. And I had the chance at that funeral just to mention briefly about the hope that we have in salvation in the living God. Let's stay connected with people 
and let's be God's arms and legs and feet uh, in those circumstances. Number seven, uh, what can we do? We need to learn to invest our money wisely. I mentioned earlier about our discretionary spend. We all have some discretion. It's great to have the latest thing, uh, but let's also think about, we are stewards of our resource, of our talent, our time, our skills, and also of our money. And let's think how we can engage by investing our money wisely in a way that will grow the kingdom of God. And the last one is to recognise that we are all part of God's plan. If we love Jesus and we want to serve him and we say we follow him, then none of us are off the hook. It's not optional that we can be in ministry or not. If we are Christians, we are in ministry. The only thing to be argued about is where God has placed us. And God wants to use all of us in different ways and different places to be part of his plan. So that's, uh, that's my eight things. Have a think about those. And I want to wrap up just by saying, what is our response? Stop, uh, amber light or go light. So what is the first thing? What is something that you will stop doing? Something that you've been doing that maybe as I've spoken you've thought, oh, gee, maybe I should stop doing that. What's God been saying to you? Something that may be not relevant or not appropriate or something that's taking more of your time than is wise? Great to have hobbies and, and outside interests, but if that becomes your God, if that becomes the thing that you spend inordinate amounts of time on, then maybe you need to slow that down. Is there anything God's been saying to you this morning that you should stop doing? What has God uh, helped you rem- remind you of this morning? That you have a gift, you have a skill, you've been doing something, you've been trying hard, you've been serving God using that skill and God wants you to continue doing that. Can you identify what that is? Can you think about what it is that you are doing that God's saying, good for you, I want you to keep going with that. In fact, I want you to develop that maybe a little more. Is there anything that comes to mind? Final thing. As a result of what we've learned this morning about Paul's approach, about the need to stay relevant, the need to stay connected, the need to be engaged with the community in which we've been placed, what's an effective mission strategy, is there anything that God's put on my heart to say that I should start doing from this morning on? Is there some little thing that I should be proactive about Something I should say, you know what? Tomorrow or this week or in the next few days, I'm going to do that. I haven't been brave enough to do it before, but I really believe that I should do that. I'm going to ask God to help me. And we're all totally reliant on God to do what we can do because without him we are nothing. And as we trust God and as we uh, ask God to help us and as we take that initiative, as we step forward in faith and respond to what God has been saying to us this morning, guess what? He's right there beside us. He's going to help us. He's going to give us the right words. Yes, we might make a mistake from time to time. We may get foot in mouth disease. That's okay. But let's each one of us just take that one thing that God's been challenging us with and say, you know what? I'd like to do that this week. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your love and your care. We thank you for the... um, timeless nature of the gospel that even from Paul's uh, address to the um, uh, people in Athens 2,000 years ago Lord the principles remain the same that you want us to be effective you want us to be relevant you want us to be your mouthpiece in the culture 
and the place and the time in which you put us and Lord we pray that you will help us help us to remember to stop doing those things which you may have touched on our hearts this morning help us to continue to do the things that you are blessing and that are good for us and Lord challenge us with the one thing that we should perhaps start doing to be proactive in as a result of our message this morning I commit each one here to you I thank you for each one I thank you for their gifting I thank you for their love for you Lord I pray that whenever we meet whoever we talk to whatever we do that our actions will glorify and honour you and that people will see you living in us so that you will be glorified and we pray and we give you thanks we commit this coming week to you in the name of Jesus Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for the time to share.